Hey everyone, Jason here. Before we get going, I just wanted to take a moment to give a quick shout out to the new paid membership option that we recently rolled out. This option is meant for people that have been getting value from the podcast and want to enable us to keep producing it in a more sustained way. It's also for people that want extra stuff, such as bonus content, a Slack room that's vibrant and filled with people tackling climate change from a wide range of backgrounds and perspectives, as well as a host of programming and events that get organized in the Slack room. We also have a virtual town hall once a month where you can get a preview of what's to come and provide feedback and input on our direction. We'll be adding more membership benefits over time. If you want to learn more, just go to the website, myclimatejourney.co. And if you're already a member... Thank you so much for your support. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Nicholas Pinkowski, co-founder of Nitricity. Nicholas is a PhD student at Stanford in mechanical engineering, where he's studying energy systems. He's also the co-founder of Nitricity, which produces ready-to-use nitrogen with only air, water, and renewable electricity. Nicholas and his team recently won the MIT Clean Energy Prize. I was a judge in that competition, and one of the things that the winner gets, in addition to money, which I'm sure he and the team care a lot more about, they also get an episode on MCJ. So here we are. We cover a lot in this episode, including how Nitricity came to be, when and why it came to be, their progress to date, some of the twists and turns along the way, their long vision for the company, and what's coming next. And we also talk about just starting a company in general within the confines of academia, the pros and cons of that approach, and what we can do as a society to foster more of this type of innovation that can have a big impact in the world and also build a big profitable company as well. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Good to have you. So I came across you guys once before because I was actually a judge in the MIT Clean Energy Competition, and Little MCJ was one of the, uh, you know, being a guest on the show was one of the prizes for the winners, and you guys were the winner, and that's a pretty prestigious event, so it's an honor to talk to you live here. Yeah, you know, I remember you asked a question to us as part of the judging panel, so thank you very much for judging us, and it was a surprise that we won that, but it's going to be really impactful for our company and the climate. Well, I gave you a few softballs as part of the judging. I saved all the, all the real hard-hitting questions for today. Uh-oh. No, I'm just kidding. So why don't we just take things from the top? I mean, what is Nitricity? Nitricity is a fertilizer company. We make nitrogen and potassium and phosphorus fertilizer and acid using air, water, and renewable electricity. Mm-hmm. And how does one get into building a fertilizer company? How did this all come to be? So we're a group of students at Stanford University, three PhD students and one postdoc. Many of our team has been is doing a PhD on this subject matter, very similar aspects of it. And for the past three years, we've been working together on how to decarbonize 
the fertilizer landscape. There's considerable emissions from the production of nitrogen fertilizer and the Haber-Bosch process today. There's only 150 to 200 of these factories in the world, but there's 4 billion acres of farmland where that fertilizer needs to get to. So there's trucking and distribution emissions and product loss. And then, you know, when it gets to the farm, the focus is on an optimized supply chain instead of what type of nitrogen is best for the soil. And so oftentimes we're putting the wrong type of nitrogen in the soil and it leads to a lot of runoff and greenhouse gas emissions in the form of N2O. Now, did you start with the problem space and then go about finding solutions or did you come up with a solution and then figure out the best place to apply it? Or I guess there's an option C, which is something different than either of those. So we're very top down. We've wanted to make nitrogen fertilizer using air, water, and sunshine or wind for three years. And we've looked at nearly 30 different technologies from around the world that could do this. And we've down-selected and built prototypes and had very challenging pivots when we've needed to, all in the pursuit of one that makes cost sense for a farmer. And we think we found one and have installed a system on a farm in California today. And so did this all happen in the context of academia? So we, it started in the context of two entrepreneurship classes at Stanford University led by uh, Danielson and Joel Moxley called Stanford Energy Ventures. This is a great- I know the class well, by the way. Oh yeah, this is a really yeah. great class. I just watched the final presentations for the new cohort. There's a really great one on cement there and how to decarbonize that. Nice. But it started in this program and then we kept going. And, you know, eventually we won, drove down to Los Angeles, gave a pitch and won $5,000, which was huge for us. And we started, we incorporated a company two years ago. And in terms of timing, when did you graduate from the program? So we graduated from Stanford Energy Ventures about two years ago. I'm still a PhD student. I'm the only one still in school of the team. Everyone is now full-time, not Tristy, and there's four of us. And one intern who's really great working with us. Got it. So the other, the other three of you pursued it straight from the degree program, and then you stuck around to continue your PhD while starting the company in parallel? Something like that. We've been working on it as a side project as we work on our PhDs for the past three years. During the course of this, folks have graduated. One postdoc position is now over. And so now there's three folks who are full-time nitricity. And uh, I'm full-time in nitricity as well. I, I also am concluding my PhD. Got it. And I always wonder, I mean, heading into to a course like that where the goal is new venture creation, did you go in planning to start a company or was it more like this was an academic exercise that ended up just kind of gradually building into something you guys took more seriously as you realized it had legs? We went in interested in the, in the challenge, largely in a curiosity point of view. So academic, you could say. It would be really great if we can find something that could decarbonize this big industry. And then, you know, the class is catered towards creating new companies and helping students who are interested in that kind of thing. And personally, that's part of the reason why I found myself at Stanford, as opposed to many other schools in the United States, because it has a rich community of entrepreneurship. So it was academic, but, you know, very much with the intention that if something could be found, it would be a great new company. And I mean, was there kind of a a hit your head in the shower moment or when did the switch flip from project to company? Oh, <laughs> not so much a moment where we realized we had it. We thought we've had it and then realized that we didn't about 20 times. <laughs> I think the big catalyst to form a company was when we realized the art of the possible in this space. There's so many new technologies out there. The fertilizer landscape and marketplace is immensely complex and we can't wait to decarbonize it. We need to start now. And so, you know, with those combinations of factors, we thought the timing was right to start a company in September 2018 after we won some funding to do so. And that was through some type of business plan competition? 
Yeah, the Flow Competition at the Transformational Idea Award Competition at uh, Caltech. Cool. And so in terms of these, the 20 different times that you mentioned, I mean, did you guys have the skills going in to do this experimentation and do these cycles to, to uncover the right thing? Or did you have to lean on a bunch of external resources during this quest? Well, <laughs> for a lot of things, we, we didn't have the skills right away and we had to learn them as we tried to construct a prototype. For most of the technologies we were looking at, it relied upon our group our teams, you know, set of core expertise, which was electrochemistry and electricity to X through catalysis type stuff. And so, you know, we started with those and those are the technological candidates that we looked at first because that was in our domain. But then we didn't limit ourselves to that. And we looked at technologies out of the box and that we had to learn and develop new skills to be able to analyze these. And do you feel like for this kind of company, starting from zero and entering where you did, where you top down, as you described, how was it starting in the in the context of an academic environment? What were the advantages of doing so and what were the disadvantages? That's a great question. The advantages are that it's a lot easier to build a prototype in a lab than it is on farm. Mm-hmm. And so you can go pretty fast in small scale innovations. The disadvantages are you're so far from, you're so disconnected from the customer and the use case that oftentimes you can get fixated on nitrogen fixation technologies that aren't necessarily in the right direction. The big turning point for us is when we got ourselves down to Fresno instead of the Bay Area and started pitching and talking to farmers and growers down here and actually started iterating hardware on farms. And that's when we had a big breakthrough because then we focused directly on the use case and on the farms and not so much the textbooks and the factories. And so that helped a lot. And I'd love to double click on that. So what is it about the textbooks versus the farms that sent you in the wrong direction or inhibited you from hitting the mark? Yeah. So for example, when you hear folks talk about in academic settings, in many new companies, talk about fixating nitrogen fertilizer. Everyone mm-hmm. says, let's make ammonia because that's how it's made today. You know, ammonia is made in these big factories. And then like, how can we make ammonia better? But ammonia is very different than fertilizer. Ammonia is not a great fertilizer. You can inject it as such. And in doing so, you emit a lot of toxic gases and you get a lot of waste. Fertilizer and plants have developed over the past billion years to use nitrate-based fertilizer. And so we came to Central Valley exploring different types of fertilizers and different types of use cases and discovered that being fixated on ammonia and improving how these factories are made is very different from making a company that's trying to decarbonize fertilizer production. And so now actually we're offering, based on our current contract, we're offering a nitrate-based fertilizer that we make with air, water, and electricity. You'd never want to ship this, but we don't have to ship it because we make it right on the farm. So this was a huge realization for us as we got you know, on the soil. So it was by talking to the farmers that you realized that a nitrate-based solution was better for them than ammonia? Yeah, we gave them a couple options. We said, sir, we can make ammonia if you really want it. Or for cheap, we can make calcium nitrate. They said, wow, you can offer calcium nitrate? That's much better than ammonia. I don't really know what we would have done with ammonia anyways. <laughs> so that was a huge realization when we had those conversations. So how are they doing it before nitricity comes along? So before we came along, so California imports 100% of its nitrogen from overseas. And so I think they're getting it from Trinidad and Tobago or Canada right now. So ammonia is being shipped in tankers from halfway across the world as produced in factories that are harming the same environment that farmers are seeking to cultivate. It gets to the port of Stockton, California, and it's stored in massive ammonia tanks. It's then distributed to various 
different chemical companies that convert this fertilizer into types that farmers actually want to use in Central Valley. Mm-hmm. And then UAN32 is a urea ammonium nitrate solution, 32% by mass nitrogen. Eventually is the most common one, the lowest cost option in Central Valley right now. And that gets trucked to various farms. And I saw one at an irrigation head last weekend, and the farmers will inject that into their irrigation stream. And so that's the process where it comes today. And what I'm hearing from you is that one key difference, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that versus getting shipped from faraway parts of the world, you are producing for them right on site, correct? Yes, sir. We turn air, water, and sunshine into fertilizer right at the irrigation head. Uh huh. What about the product that they're getting itself? How does that stack up to what they're getting shipped from these faraway places? Of course, I'm biased, but we've gotten great feedback that it's actually more aligned with what they would want. For example, currently, UAN32 or calcium ammonium nitrate is commonly used in California. We're offering a farm calcium nitrate. And this is something that they've used in the past and they like just as much. And so this is, it was a drop-in alternative for them here. So tell me the pitch. If I'm a farmer and you are looking to do business with me, why should I work with you relative to the things I'm, I'm doing today? Yeah. <laughs> so it comes down to So fertilizer today, I think, is done backwards. And so the pitch of the farmer starts with just listening and asking them about their fertilizer demands. And it doesn't just stop at nitrogen. It's only one component. You ask and you listen. You go and you you tell them that you're curious and you listen to how they apply nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and how they manage pH. And then you ask them, you know, how do they optimize it and what would they look for? And then you say, so we produce a system that sits underneath the solar panel or plugs into the grid. And it can make a variety of different nitrogen fertilizers at any pH. And we'll give you the reins. We'll give you the control panel. And you can make and inject whatever type, whatever form out of these seven options at whatever pH you'd like at any moment you'd like. And we ask them if they think that would be useful and how they may optimize that and you know what components of the product they think would be particularly valuable. And so they get really excited at that point because you're totally empowered. You don't have to call a distributor to get fertilizer ordered. You don't have to go to the irrigation head to inject a type. You don't have to calculate the price per acre as a function of the different types of fertilizer they're applying today. It simplifies the process. It gives them a dashboard and empowers them to do it themselves. And you mentioned Fresno. So where are you guys at from a delivery standpoint? How many farms are you delivering to? And are they all based in Fresno or are they located in other places as well? We're on our first farm in Fresno, California now. Mm-hmm. It's at the Center for Irrigation and Technology at Fresno, California. We sized a system for only one acre, and we have a much smaller plot than that even, and it's subsurface irrigated processing tomatoes. And so we have a, an R&D contract with this irrigation center, and it's already making nitrogen and storing it every day when the sun rises and sends data to the cloud, and then you know, we monitor it and are working on it. And so next year, we want to get on a 70-acre commercial scale plot in Central Valley. And so that's something we're really excited about. How do you think about addressable market? How many farms are there in the world? And how many of those realistically can you serve? And what are the criteria that makes a farm a good prospect for you? Yeah. So just in California is a great beachhead for us. And, you know, we're starting in higher value fertilizer markets. So we're looking for farmers that use irrigation and like to uh, fertigate apply fertilizer through the irrigation system. And we're looking for farmers that have, a, have cash crops. And so they care more about the specialty type of fertilizer. Or we're looking for farmers who have a hair on fire pH soil challenge. And so for either of those two farms, we can replace conventional fertilizer and at a better cost. 
And so, you know, we can provide a direct value add. We're also trying to certify our fertilizer as organic. An organic fertilizer today is impossibly expensive. And so that would be a big game changer for the company. Why does organic matter? So the cost per pound of nitrogen of conventional fertilizer in Central Valley is about 50 cents or 40 cents. The cost per pound of nitrogen in organic fertilizer is $5. And so, you know, oftentimes it's too expensive to apply enough nitrogen. But why does it matter? Why do I care as a farmer if I use organic versus not? Oh, so there's much higher margins if you can produce an organic product. But the yield that you can get is sometimes lower because you can't apply as much low-cost nitrogen. Uh Well, your margins are better. Is that what you mean? So if you can produce an organic tomato as opposed to a, a, a conventional tomato, you can sell that tomato for a much higher price. So that's what farmers are. Oh, so they can say it was produced organically and they get the brand Halo and, I mean, presumably a better product. Okay. And when you go to scale from the one farm that you're on to two farms, five farms, 10 farms, 100 farms, 1,000 farms, how do you think about staging and what are the big challenges as you scale and specifically for the next phase as well? Yeah. A lot of the farms we've spoken to in Central Valley, they'll have 9,000 acres or 5,000 acres and they'll test a new technology out on 50 acres. So, you know, it's really important for us that every contract that we have right now is executed very well, such that when we leave, the farmer wants to convert their entire farm to nitricity, nitrogen, and other fertilizer. That's really important for us. So, you know, we want to find one to three commercial farms in California and get a test plot next year and have is all of those convert and apply it across much more of their acreage in the subsequent year. So we need to, it becomes really personal. We need to give the growers exactly what they ask for and produce a product that is very good. Are you actually selling them the nitrogen itself or are you selling them essentially the gear that they need to produce it on their own land? So farmers, whatever they buy in terms of, it's our understanding that growers, however they buy nitrogen fertilizer or any other types of fertilizers, they convert it to an internal budgetary sheet that's in the form of dollars per acre per year. So that's how they normalize all their different inputs coming into this budget sheet. So we charge dollars per acre per year and we'll provide up to, you know, 200 pounds of nitrogen per year and X amount of phosphorus and potassium. We're still working on that. And at any pH that they would like, uh, directly in the form that their internal spreadsheet's on. And we'll sell it. Do you put the equipment on site, but you own it and manage it? Is that what I'm hearing? We organize the finance and installation of nitrogen production assets and sell prescriptions in the form of dollars per acre per year to the farm. Got it. So the capital outlay for the equipment and the ownership of the equipment, is that you or is that the farmer? That's us. So we really have to hustle on the back end to make it as easy as possible for the grower. The grower has enough to worry about to then to services and install and own these pieces of equipment. Got it. And is there any risk that you're going to put this equipment on site and for whatever reason not be able to deliver through either factors within or outside of your control? Whenever you have a new technology, there's always that that risk. No one has ever done this type of on-farm production and solution before. And so you know, that risk definitely exists. And we really have to hustle to make sure we can execute on these contracts. We're taking it step by step. That's why we're going on. We're on one research plot this year, one commercial test plot next year, and expand beyond that. And that'll be a way that we can mitigate those risks and maintain good relationships. And what are you most worried about at the moment? What's keeping up at night? Oh, (laughs) there's a big difference between building something in a lab and building it on the farm. You know, right now it's about 110 degrees on the field in Fresno and we're optimizing our system. And so we're out there working on it every single day. So what's keeping me up at night is the bits and bobs and, you know, how we can optimize this and how we can perfect this and 
and that's what we're focused on right now. Mm -hmm. And as you think about scaling, so I would imagine given the, well, I guess I didn't ask, but what kind of equipment costs are we talking about? Like how much do you guys typically have to put up in cash for a single customer engagement? So it all depends on where the electricity comes from. Mm -hmm. Our system that sits underneath the solar panels and fixes nitrogen is very low cost. And that's part of why it makes sense and why we chose it out of all the different technologies we looked at, that this system is, it's got low capital cost. And so it can operate intermittently. And then the question becomes, do we have to pay for solar panels to be put down or not? And so if we have to also pay for a, a solar array, we have to work with the bank to get a loan on the solar. And is there any cap on what the equipment can produce since it's using, presumably it sounds like all natural resource, like from the air and water and things like that? Are there, are there any, like, are there chemical dependencies that you need access to certain chemicals or things like that? Or is all of that mitigated by the way that you're delivering this product? So right now, to give you a sense, there is a cap. It's based on, you know, how much sun there is per day. But uh, we could also plug it into the grid and pretty much that cap is gone. But right now, the system turns on every morning when the sun crests the horizon and hits the panels. The system turns on. And then at the end of the day, it turns off. Or if a cloud goes over the sun for an extended period of time, it turns off. And so, you know, we size this system. We have to oversize the system such that it can work intermittently. We have to estimate based on the profile and where a farm is located, that oversize factor that we need to do such that it can operate intermittently effectively. Uh -huh. So is this a very capital intensive business to scale? If we have to own all the solar panels, it will be. But if we can get uh, support in financing the solar panels for which our system sits underneath, it shouldn't be. The technology we chose can work with intermittent electricity and is not too expensive. And how do you think about source of capital? So would it be kind of a little bit of equity capital to get the team and the initial product in place? And then when it comes to really scaling, that would come through some form of debt or project finance? Yeah, great question. So to get this on its feet until the point where we have enough fertilizer contracts and subscriptions where it, can, it has its own momentum, we are raising some equity finance. We're in the middle of a fundraising round. It's going very well. And I'm very pleased about this. You know, things like the MIT Clean Energy Prize are hugely influential to helping us. And we're applying to a bunch of government grants, about one, <laughs> it feels like one every week lately. And so that's how we're thinking about capital right now. We are hoping to get project finance or effectively loans once we have enough assets that we can leverage those as collateral. That will be used for solar panels. So we don't have to own those. Got it. And so what I've heard in other kinds of businesses of, of this nature, there's the, the upfront cost to get going, and then there's the project finance to scale, but you've got this, there's different words for it. It's like first plant risk. How do you fund the first of a kind or, or that kind of thing? Is, is that a relevant concern for this type of business or is it kind of a smoother progression than that? That's a great question. And so, you know, these systems, we've designed them as such and they need to last for multiple years. And, you know, there will be a cash pinch upfront such that we can organize the financing of the hardware to install it. And so organizing that, that's the crux of the model. And so, you know, that's something that we're going to have to sort out in the upcoming years. For one 50-acre plot, and currently our current experiment that's sized for about one acre, that hasn't been a huge pinch point yet, but it certainly will be. Say we have to organize the hardware for 8,000 acres, you're going to need some hardware costs, and that's going to have to come from somewhere. So given that you guys haven't been through it before in terms of starting and scaling a company, how do you think about the buckets of expertise where you need the biggest help? That's a great question. Personally, I think we're going to need, there's the tech side and then there's the business side. And on the business side, we're focused very much on the, on the farmer. And so on the business side, 
where we could use expertise, additional expertise is with an agronomist. What we do is we'd love to provide nitricity recommended nutrient curves that we offer with our product. In helping us come up with those curves, we need to be out there talking to growers in the Valley and agronomists in California Central Valley who can help us make this. On the tech side, we're about to make a big jump in the next phase between a one acre size system and a 50 acre size system. And we can no longer get parts off the shelf because our power electronics have to be too big. And so we're going to have to start working with the power electricity grid in order to identify and engineer some of the key power electronics components in our system. And so what type of expertise would be helpful in navigating that? Power electronics, high voltage. And do you see, I mean, you mentioned intermittency before, but if storage, for example, if the cost came down on on storage to the point where it could be applied to start to store some of that excess capacity and address some of that intermittency, is that an opportunity for your cost to come way down over time? Perhaps. The intermittency and the difference in cost is during, as a function of the day really, really helps us. What we are doing in some essence is energy storage. Whenever there is a lot of sun in the middle of the day and electricity costs are cheap, let's use that to make fertilizer locally instead of importing it from halfway across the world. And then, you know, slowly over the course of the year, we fill a tank with fertilizer that's used as needed on the farm. And so, you know, I actually think that these intermittent resources, we just need more of them and that our solution fits in as an alternative to energy storage. Let's just use it right away. Mm -hmm. And in your wildest dreams, if you look back five years, 10 years, 20 years down the line on what nitricity has achieved, what will you have accomplished? Personally, I'm excited about the greenhouse gas emissions potential impact that our company can have. You know, if every system we see in the soil fixing nitrogen is mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, and that's one area that drives everyone on our team to work on this problem. And so if we're on tens of thousands of acres or hundreds of thousands of acres, uh, we'll be mitigating serious CO2 emissions. And so that'll be really impactful in the long term. Who are the biggest players in providing the nitrogen and fertilizer to these farmers today? Yeah. In California Central Valley, I think JR Simplot or Nutrien are big on providing minerals and nutrients to farms. And there's you know not a whole lot of different options. If you're looking at organic nitrogen fertilizer, Whoever's supplying the lowest cost chicken manure, you know, might might be in business at the time. Uh huh. And you mentioned California. Is the landscape very different as you go to different kind of subgeographies, so different parts of the country or different parts of the world? Not at all. No, not at all. California is a great place to start, but effectively, I mean, we've all seen it when we've had the window seat of an airplane. Whenever you take off from anywhere, you're surprised at the high density of agricultural land that you see below you. Specifically, any place you see those big rotating sprinkler systems, overhead sprinkler systems, drawing circles on the landscape you can see from the airplane. Those are center pivot irrigation systems, and you'll see those everywhere in the world. And those are providing irrigated, irrigable nitrogen fertilizer. Pretty much all across the world will have an impact there. And in terms of the providers, is it the same providers that are providing globally, or are those kind of regionalized, and is that a fragmented landscape? Oh, it's fairly fragmented as well. The United States has, is fortunate such that there's a lot of private companies that own Haber-Bosch. Well, it's all private companies that own these Haber-Bosch facilities. Now, as you look outside the United States, these factories today that make fertilizer are so expensive that a country is the client and a country will buy a Haber-Bosch factory. The United States is fortunate to have access to fertilizer. Where fertilizer is needed the most around the world, it is unavailable or the most expensive today. So then is this about both eliminating the need for these factories as well as making fertilizer more 
accessible in places where it's not available today? Is that the pitch? To me, that's something I care about a lot. And our whole team does at Nitricity is that making nitrogen fertilizer universally available such that, you know, there's a big inequity today in where nitrogen fertilizer is the most expensive in where it is needed. For example, the, you know, the United States and the Mississippi, we have so much nitrogen access to so much low cost nitrogen, we overapply it. However, in different parts of the world where it's needed today and where, in fact, you know, famine still exists, you cannot buy nitrogen for under a dollar a pound. Why is that? Oh, well, someone has to figure out how to buy a $3 billion Haber-Bosch facility. And to need a $3 billion Haber-Bosch facility, you need $4 billion worth of natural gas infrastructure. You need a lot of hardware to get... So it's about energy. It's about energy accessibility. Energy accessibility is huge, and it's in balance where it's available. But you mentioned at the outset that this nitrogen is getting shipped from all over the world. So why couldn't it just be shipped to these places that don't have their own Haber-Bosch facility? You can. You can. You'll see urea around the world. The best form of fertilizer to ship is ammonia. It's high mass fractional percentage nitrogen. It's nitrogen with three H's on it. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. But if you put a tank of ammonia, say in sub-Saharan Africa or somewhere else, you need the infrastructure and the something called a bar that's used in, in the Midwest to put that in the soil. And that infrastructure is simply not there. So instead, you have to you supply a solid form fertilizer, urea, which is 46% by mass nitrogen. So it's a little bit more expensive to ship. But you can, you can get it in bags and you'll see it on trucks anywhere you are in the world. That's pretty good to ship, but the cost is a direct function of how close you are to a distribution center and the coast. And the, the existing players that are providing nitrogen today, do they know about you guys? Oh, <laughs> probably not. After we, we pitched, I think, at MIT Clean Energy Prize, or it might have been the Stanford Basis Award, which we recently won as well. We had a fertilizer company reach out to us saying, we'd love to learn about your technology. To which that would be great. However, we're also a fertilizer company, so I don't know if we want to tell them about our technology. Got it. So there's not much discussion. Like right now, the the strategics are at arm's length because you're more concerned with trying to figure out how to how to unseat them than than how to collaborate. At least early on, while you're proving yourself out. Oh, we'd love to collaborate. Our model is completely different. However, we're not building a handful of plants around the United States. We're building farm hardware. And so we're working more closely with irrigation companies than we are with fertilizer companies. Fertilizer companies are so disconnected from the farms that we're working on. And in terms of expanding to other farmers, you mentioned tuning the model on a per farm basis. I mean, what are the biggest barriers when you look at expanding from one farm to, let's say, 10 farms? I mean, is it, a, is it the manual nature of what's required of being on site or, or are there other factors that make scaling difficult? Yeah, going from one farm to 10 farms. Provide some context. We are developing a solution that hooks up to an irrigation injection head and an irrigation injection pump. And so, you know, 10 farms is just going to have 10 times as many of those. And so one farm with, say, 4,000 acres or something like that will already have a large number of those. And 10 farms is going to have many more than that. And so at that point, we're going to need an assembly line. We're going to need high throughput ability to produce the equipment. How resource intensive is it to actually manage the equipment once it's on site? Oh, <laughs> I can tell you the answer now and I can tell you what we hope that it is one day. We wouldn't have rented an apartment in Fresno, California, right next to the farm if it worked right away when we first put it down. We're out there every day working on it, optimizing it and improving it. And we will likely be on the farms quite a bit for our first contracts. But, you know, at some point and how we've designed it is it's totally controllable online. And so we turn it off and on using a web server, and we can monitor it using a web server. And hopefully we can predict it's going to fail before it fails and can send maintenance crews out. So ultimately, this will be kind of centrally managed across the portfolio of clients that you work with. That's the vision? 
That's a vision. And that data would be extremely interesting as well. I hope to see what we call a, a fertilizer marauders map, where we have a production asset in, say, 20 different locations. And, you know, we can see exactly the type of nitrogen being used, how much, when it's used, and really optimize our systems accordingly and monitor them to make sure they don't break when they're most needed. Has anything like this ever been tried before? It's our understanding that it has not. There were large factories that made fertilizer in many different types of strategies before the incumbent Haber-Bosch process came into play. There was electric arc-based techniques. There were other high-temperature techniques. You know, People even tried using molten lithium to make nitrogen fertilizer. We've tried that as well. But it's all been in factories and very far away from the farms. Developing a solution that's, that's just like an irrigation pump, but it, now it fixes its own nitrogen, is, is very unique to nitricity. And this would be a different process, kind of like, like the next generation beyond Haber-Bosch. Is that what I'm hearing? We hope so. Absolutely. Have you given it a name? Oh, <laughs> well, I think our first one, well, I'll be completely honest with you. The name of our first system is called the Bosch Squasher. Nice. <laughs> yeah. It seems like, you know, the Haber-Bosch process, Newton's laws, like you, you know, if you guys are first in defining a new process that's radically different than the process that exists today and takes the industry a fundamental step forward in terms of get, putting the farmer in more control, de- delivering a higher quality, more personalized offering and eliminating a bunch of GHG emissions in the process, it seems like that warrants a name that even if anyone else goes and produces similar down the road, they're using your process. Uh, That's my two cents. Well, we just call it nitricity now. (laughs) Awesome. I mean, you mentioned that climate's a big driver for you. If you weren't doing what you're doing, what else would you be doing to tackle climate change? Yeah. The other projects I've always been really interested in are, I'd probably join a company that I heard pitched at Stanford Energy Ventures the other day on cement. I think cement could have a lot of impact. Something like cement or steel would, would really interest me. Those are, those are really so some hard. of these harder to decarbonize areas where they're, they're big GHG drivers and no real game plan at the moment? Yeah, these are really impactful areas that are exceedingly challenging. They need a lot of innovation and they need our best and brightest working on it today. And I think some of them are working on it at Stanford. I would join those, those folks. Awesome. Well, anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? That's, that's all I got. <laughs> I can think that maybe something will come to mind here out of that. Well, I can ask you something more more specific. So you're doing something that a lot of people that are part of the MCJ community aspire to do, which is starting a company that is trying to make a meaningful dent in GHG emissions. So if I'm an entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur that is listening to this episode and hearing your story and inspired by it and wanting to find my own lane, what advice would you have for me in trying to figure that out? Well, I'd say go for the big problem and don't give up. There's been a lot of times in Nitricity's history where it would, it would have been very easy to give up and stop working on the project. However, you know, we weren't married to a single technology. We we're mar- married to solving the problem. And that's really helped us. And it's helped us stay resilient. And I think it would help other folks. So it takes a little bit of grit to start a company. And, you know, some days you feel it, like the days where it's, you know, 110 degrees on the farm and something breaks. Like today. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, uh, if you stick with it and your intention is good and you're going after something impactful, then you got to have a little bit of trust in the process. Awesome. Well, Nico, congrats on the progress to date. And thanks for making the time to come on the show. Also, congrats on the MIT Clean Energy Prize. And best of luck to you and the whole team for the future. You guys are doing awesome stuff. Thank you very much, sir. Have a great day. Hey everyone, Jason here. 
Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.